What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am lucky to be talking to Evan Yu. Evan is a creator of a JavaScript framework called Vue.js, or sometimes just Vue. Vue is used by hundreds of thousands of programmers all over the world to help them build their apps and websites, and it's even in use at companies like Netflix and Facebook. So it's tremendously popular and influential, and I think my favorite thing about it is that it's essentially the brainchild of just one person, Evan Yu. So Evan, welcome, and thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks. So we've got a mix of people who listen to this podcast. A lot of them are programmers who know exactly what Vue is, and I'm sure some who don't. But there are also a lot of people listening who have no idea what Vue is. They don't know what a JavaScript framework is or even what JavaScript is or what open source is. So can you take a stab at maybe explaining what you're doing in a way that everybody can understand? JavaScript is language, programming language, almost everyone used to build applications on the web. So if you're using Gmail, Gmail is built with JavaScript. And Gmail is an application inside the browser. It's pretty complex and it has a lot of uh, special logic and it has to manage all these interfaces that you're seeing, buttons you're clicking on. So naturally, it it becomes very complex when you try to build something like that instead of a simple website. And this is where frameworks come in. Frameworks are essentially abstractions and a set of libraries that help developers to build this kind of complex applications make it easier for them to build such applications. And Vue.js is one of those frameworks. It is open source in the sense that we publish our source code completely free. Anybody can just use it uh, whenever they want to, which means we don't charge any money for people using it. So that makes it kind of unique in the sense that we, as um, someone who works on it full time, I still need to find ways to monetize it, but just not directly sell it. I think most people listening into this would think that you're sort of the stereotypical programming whiz, that you're this professionally trained programmer who has a degree in computer science and you've been making apps since you were six. But actually, none of that's true. What's (laughs) the story behind how you learned to code? Right. Um, My first contact with something close to programming is probably through Flash. I was playing with Flash in in middle school when uh, a cousin of mine showed it and I was like, wow, this is cool. So I started with playing with Flash a lot. But at that time, the most of common thing that I did was just copy-pasting all these little scripts that I found on the internet into the things I was building. I didn't really understand any sort of uh, serious programming patterns until later in college, I took one computer science class, which was Introduction to Programming with Java. And I actually didn't, didn't like it that much. I felt Java was pretty verbose, and it kind of made it very difficult for me to just directly jump from start to getting something on the screen. So I kept playing with Flash and actually bought a book on ActionScript 3 to teach myself how to make more use of programming concepts inside of Flash. And later on, I went to a master's program called Design Technology. Uh, It's a master's of fine arts program. So it taught you both a bit of programming and a lot of more design stuff. That was the time I actually started to seriously learn JavaScript because I noticed that you can do 
a lot of interesting things directly in the browser and it made it very easy to share it with people. So that's how I actually started to say I want to learn programming properly so that I can build more uh, complex and advanced stuff. What was driving you to learn all this stuff? I think most people, when they encounter that first sort of hurdle, when they take that programming class in college and it's not fun, mm-hmm. they just quit there. Why did you keep programming? Was it something you loved doing or was there something else that you wanted to achieve through programming? Sure. Uh, I think mostly I wanted to build things. I, I, I had this urge to create all the time, although the things I wanted to create kind of changed over time. Initially, I thought I was going to become a designer because I was uh, designing some websites for friends. And then I started trying to build these websites myself because I couldn't find anyone to build it for me. And in that process, I kind of had to force myself to learn all the necessary little things to learn how to deploy a website, learn how to properly use JavaScript and actually how to manage the state in your application, which just gets into more complex territories over time. But mostly I'm self-taught just because I was trying to learn the necessary things that allows me to build the things I want to build. So you got an MFA, a Master of Fine Arts degree. I'm curious why you went that route instead of getting a traditional CS degree when you knew that you wanted to be a builder of things. You knew that there was this sort of golden path out there that would teach you what you needed to know. Right. Um, the kind of things I wanted to build was always leaning more towards the, the creative side. The things that I looked like most was uh, websites like FWA. I don't know if anyone know about it, but it's like favorite website awards. It was mostly super flashy, super fancy, like heavy animation sites, flash sites back in the days. And that's what got me into, say, I want to build things on the web. Although... That kind of website is kind of, um, it's, it, most of those websites are just marketing, one-off marketing sites. But a lot of them consisted of these uh, really interesting interactive bits, like um, things you don't typically do in, in uh, serious applications. And I was actually interested more in that area of stuff, which led me to study design technology programs, which is in fact very closely connected to this uh, creative marketing side of things. But later on, it deviated a little bit because um, when I was building some kind of those experiments, I was trying to abstract all the reusable parts, which eventually turned into my little set of libraries. That kind of was the, the, I guess, leading into what I did with Vue is essentially taking all those learnings and abstracting it into something called a framework. So let's, let's talk about Vue. Say you're working on Vue, and the way you make money is primarily through donations on Patreon. So I can open up your Patreon page right now, and I see that you have 232 people who are donating a total of $16,547 to you every Mm -hmm. month. So you'll keep Mm -hmm. working on Vue. That's a lot of money to make on your own, on your own project. When you first set out to work on Vue, was, was it your goal to achieve something like this? Definitely not. When I first started working on Vue, it was completely an experiment. There were already other frameworks out there like Angular 1. And I think um, React came out actually earlier than Vue as well, but very few people knew about it back then. And when I started working on Vue, it was mostly an experiment saying, hey, there are these frameworks out there. How uh, Can I make my own? Because uh, it looked fun. And there were also some technic- uh, very lower-level technical stuff I wanted to try out in my own frameworks. That was the primary motivation when I started the project, but it kind of grew organically later on when more users 
started actually using it in their applications, and they told me they liked it. And I hear this over and over, and I was like, "There's, there must be something to it. Uh, there must be something in this little thing that I created, and and I should probably spend some more time on it, try to make it better, see where the full potential is." And eventually, it got big enough that I realized I could probably try to monetize it in some way. And Patreon was seemed like the the least. Uh, the, the way that requires least maintenance on, you know, having to think about it because I set it up, people donate money and they charge, <laughs> they are charged automatically. So I don't need to worry too much about it so that I can keep focusing on creating instead of just trying to think about monetizing it all the time. It's fascinating that you started this as a hobby with no real goal of making any money from it whatsoever. And yet it's resulted in this, this massive business win for yourself. I know a lot of people... Mm-hmm who start out on day one trying to make money and never get to that amount of revenue every month. Do you think that if it had been your goal for Vue to be a business from day one, if you had set out to make ten dollars or $20,000 a month, that you would have done things differently from the start? I would probably done it very differently. I think one of the biggest advantages of starting out without thinking about monetization is that I only focused on just making it good. Because I had a day job when I started working on it. So I wasn't really pressured to say I I need to monetize as fast as possible. So I had a long time to just slowly think about what's the best way forward and polish all the little technical details, write very very lengthy documentations. So all of these little things add up. And when I eventually wanted to say work on it full time, it it was already solid enough that uh, people are willing to say this is something worthy of you know paying money for although they're not paying for it directly these companies are saying like this is something with momentum so we're willing to sponsor it let's walk through the beginning of your journey here when you're working your day job you've got i suppose free time on the side or maybe time at your day job to work on this how did you decide that view was a thing that you wanted to build and did you have ideas for other projects that were competing for your attention well, yeah, Vue was uh, just one of many little experiments I had back then. Because when I started Vue, I was working at Google as a creative technologist. My job at Google involved uh, very fast iterations on these interactive experiments, prototypes. I worked at a place called Google Creative Lab, where it's a very versatile team. We had programmers, creative technologists, designers, copywriters, just like purely creative strategists. Um, and we keep cranking out these crazy little ideas all the time, and we had to have very fast turnaround uh, time. So I had to, whenever they, we got some interesting idea coming in, I need to just like start on it, build something really quick. And in that process, I was also, whenever I had interesting little technical ideas, I would just build a little library, publish it on NPM, or just try to make a little open source project. It, it was kind of like a, a mini portfolio for a creative technologist. How how quick is quick when you say you're iterating through these projects? Are you taking like weeks or months or days or how long does it take you to get out one of these things? I think average is like two to three weeks per project. Okay, so you're going super quick. From start to finish. Wow. Yeah, uh, because those projects are not like, a, we're not trying to ship a complete product to the users. It's more like we start from an idea, then we finish at something that's deliverable to a real product team where they can evaluate this and maybe iterate on top of it to make it a real product. So that's cool. You're at this big business, Google, but you're kind of getting almost startup practice where they're like, you need to iterate and and build these things quickly. And so you're getting in the habit of launching things without wasting tons of time. Exactly. It was a really good experience, definitely. 
Was Vue one of these projects that you worked on for Google, or was it a project that you decided to work on for yourself while you were a creative technologist? That was completely for myself. We were doing a, a bunch of things. Uh, a few of those projects actually required something more like a proper UI framework. Uh, and a few of those projects actually used Angular 1. But the decision was made by some of my coworkers who introduced Angular 1 into those projects, which I happened to collaborate on. And I was using Angular, and there are bits of it that I liked, bits of it that I didn't. And I felt like this feels really useful, and uh, I could completely just like have something like this just for myself that I could use in my personal projects. And, and because creating it myself allows me to just throw away the things I didn't like about Angular. <laughs> And also, it was a good practice. Just I wanted to, I was curious. As a technologist, I was curious how it was done. And I wanted to just find out whether I could do it. It started as a really, really simple experiment, proof of concept, almost. And it actually sat in my drawer for a good six months before I decided to open source it. You mentioned that you guys were using Angular, which is another one of these front-end JavaScript frameworks just like Vue. And it was actually created at Google. So I can only imagine that every team at Google was also using Angular. And also around the same time, there was React, which you talked about earlier, another front-end JavaScript framework created by Facebook. And both of these companies, Google and Facebook, are known for having some of the best programming talent in the world. I think that would be enough to stop most people in their tracks and discourage them from ever going on to build their own JavaScript framework. Why didn't that stop you? When it began, I think one of the... I didn't really think about competing with them. That was a blessing because I didn't have to pressure myself about, oh, these bigger libraries can do these things, but mine can't. These bigger libraries had these backing, but I don't. I didn't have to think about it because I wasn't trying to compete with them. So I just focused on making the library itself good enough that I would feel like technically it would be on the same level. And then naturally some people discovered that, hey, there's this independent thing, but it's as good in some way. And on the other hand, when we were trying to say uh, we built a, we built a library, it's interesting because React, Angular, and Vue have some different sort of um, I would say flavor in terms of the the API design. So uh, programmers naturally have different taste in in the in the programming tools that they want to use. For example, some people like uh, dynamic languages like JavaScript, Ruby, Python. Some people like more a lower level languages like C or Rust. Some people like strongly typed languages, a very complex type system, right? People have different tastes. So do front-end developers when they are picking a library or a framework. Vue started off from my personal taste of what I would like as a framework. And I think that happened to coincide with a lot of other developers' taste, which allowed it to sort of naturally attract developers that had a similar mindset with me. And I think there are a lot of front-end developers, especially in these creative agencies, little companies, small business, small teams, compared those with, say, a huge enterprise, huge corporation. Uh, They actually have very different development models and mindset, team setup, and also their own technical backgrounds, right? It's very diverse. So if you kind of capture the group of developers that there is this, this uh, I would say, a market fit that's unique to Vue, which I didn't realize when I started. But uh, looking back, I think that's what actually made Vue succeed nationally over time. Yeah, that's really fascinating that you, you sort of built this perfect, like I want to say niche product that appealed to a very small right. subset of programmers. Maybe not that small after all, now that Vue's huge. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the time, you didn't know that you were doing that. 
but you said that you were focused on making Vue good. What did good mean to you in the absence of a target audience? Good means uh, it, um, it provides a good development experience, right? Because I am a developer myself. So before I built Vue, I was a consumer of such, li- uh, such, such libraries and frameworks. And when I'm building apps, I would come up with a list of things that I like and don't like about these tools that I was using. So when I build Vue, I try to hit all the boxes that I like about those previous tools, right? Like when I when I use the library, I'm like, oh, wow, this is a cool idea. If I were to build a framework myself, I would definitely do this. And sometimes when I'm doing something, I, was, I wish there could be a tool that allows me to do this. And if I were to build it myself, yeah, I would definitely do it. All of these little things that accumulate over time as a consumer of other tools sort of uh, cultivated into this. When I finally get the chance to create something for my own, I just pour all of these little things into the thing I am creating. And I think that uh, resonates with a lot of other developers as well. I wonder how much of you changed as a result of you eventually opening it up for other people to use. Because it sounds like in the beginning, Mm -hmm. you had your own personal checklist of what you wanted to see in a tool. And on one hand, it's true that other people might be just like you, but when you first started showing it to people, was it the case that they're all just like you, or did you have to go back to the drawing board and sort of, you know, reevaluate some of your assumptions and make changes to view in order to make it better for other people to use as well? Uh, definitely. Um, well, the good thing is when I first open source view, it didn't. It was more like, hey, I made something cool. Like, if you like it, just use it. If you don't, I don't really care. Uh, that was the that was really my attitude when I first open sourced it. Later on, we actually had a proper community. We had a decent group amount of users. And when we were, say, trying to do the 1.0 release, and 1.0 is something special when you're releasing a software because uh, there is uh, this convention called uh, semantic versioning, which means when once you release a major version, you're not supposed to make any breaking changes until the next major version. Right. So 1.0 really meant something and we want to really get it right. And that was the first time we actually had to say, we, I am proposing that we make these changes and let people voice their opinions on whether this looks like a good idea or not. And we actually had really lengthy dis- debates and discussions on what should and should not be done uh, before we finally released 1.0. And that actually was the, I think, marked the point where it transitioned from a completely personal project to something that's more or less a community product where users actually had a voice in the decisions being made. There's so much there that I want to talk to you about, especially this 1.0 launch, this process of taking what was previously this private personal project and making it something public is really interesting. But first, let's go back to the days before that. A lot of people that I talk to are in the situation that you're in, where they have a passion project of sorts, but they also have a full-time job. And it's difficult to navigate doing both of those at the same time. How did you find the motivation and the time and the energy to complete such an ambitious side project while working a full-time job? Well, I, I guess I was lucky because I started the project when I was uh, when I was young and didn't have kids. <laughs> so I had a, a ton of free time uh, outside of my day job. I remember working on Vue like late at night on weekends. Uh, I really did spend a lot of time just outside of my regular job. So that was, uh, and the motivation part, I think it was because I just wanted to do create something cool and good. It was kind of like proving myself as a competent uh, developer or a competent technologist. 
I think um, at some point, I initially it was an experiment, right? But at some point, when people actually started using it, I started to look at it more as a product. And I want to build something that makes myself proud. I want to build something that when people mention it, they're like, oh, that is a cool project, right? That was the, the thing I was aiming for when I was spending those weekends just working on. It was almost like a hobby to some extent because uh, I remember there was a period of time when I just didn't know what to do. I would just crack open the editor and start working on you. Obviously, I, it's getting more difficult to do that today, but uh, I, I think in the early stages, this kind of mode is kind of what made it, uh, made it tick. How long did it take you to actually get view from the point where it was just an idea to a real thing that other people could start using? Um, I think the first commit was in June or July 2013. And the first public release was in February 2014. So that's like six to eight months, I think. And was it just you working on it by yourself that entire time? Or were you showing it to people and collaborating? Um, I think it was mostly just me. Uh, it was just like this completely random folder inside uh, in my laptop. I just kept working on it over time. I think that early eight months, it wasn't as intensive as it was later. It was mostly whenever I had spare time, I felt I wanted to play with something. I would work on it a little bit. The more intensive part was before the um, before the 1.0 release. I was working really hard on it. So yeah, let's talk about that process of, of getting ready for this 1.0 release. And you mentioned that you open-sourced Vue. A lot of people listening don't even know what open source is and aren't sure what that process is like. How did you open source Vue and how did you get your very first few users? I think a typical way to for, for uh, developers to open source something is you first you put it on GitHub. GitHub is uh, the place where you can share your code, share the source code of your projects. So everyone can just look at every line of code you wrote and understand what you're doing. The first thing you do is I put the source code of Vue onto GitHub uh, you want to make sure that the repository is actually public so everyone can see it. Then I posted the link to Hacker News, uh, which is you know kind of the the place where uh, a lot of developers actually show off their the, the new cool stuff they build on. It's kind of like product hunt, but for only for hackers, right? I also submitted to some of the uh, sort of I say blogs back then. Uh, there were a few blogs that just like showcase new JavaScript projects. Uh, every week. The one that got the most attention was the Hacker News post where I think I got 200-ish upvotes. Uh, it got up, up, upvoted to the front page, which is actually quite difficult for something that's completely new because Hacker News has some really weird uh, algorithm in, in determining whether your post can stay on the front page. You have to say, like, get really uh, anonymous upvote like uh, decentralized upvotes. Basically, if they detect anything you're trying to say, uh, ask a bunch of friends to upvote your post, they will like actually deprioritize it. But somehow the post got upvoted and stayed on the front page for quite a few hours. So that draw the first batch of traffic. I think that was uh, how I got the, the first group of users. They discovered it on Hacker News. I didn't know that you launched on Hacker News. I also launched ND Hackers on Hacker News a couple of years after you launched View. But I'm reading this Hacker News thread right now and it's funny looking at the comments. One one person said, I do very little front-end development, but I really like this. Mm-hmm. It seems much more lightweight <laughs> than Angular or Ember, but similarly powerful. 
how much were you learning from finally revealing what you were working on to the world and seeing feedback like this? Um, I actually wrote a blog post about it. It's on my blog called um, First Week of Launching UJS. I actually uh, did a little postmortem where I summarized the things I did. I submitted to Hacker News, Reddit, Acco.js, DailyJS. These are just uh, these sub-communities that focused on JavaScript and took a look at the, um, the visit stats and all that. I think the takeaway was that you kind of have to think about it as a product more than just a technical library because um, when people try to evaluate a technical solution, they also they not only look at the code and what it achieves, they also look at uh, the, your overall presentation. Did you have a good readme that explains what problems you're trying to solve and how you can compare with other similar solutions? They also read your code to evaluate whether it's solid enough. A lot of these little details would add together when you launch in something that is open source. Let's talk about this process of growing an open source JavaScript framework. Open source is fascinating in that I can't readily think of an analogous phenomenon in any other industry where the people will toil and sweat and work and then put all of the results of their work online free for everybody else to use and copy whenever they want. What are some of the strategies you've used and the challenges you've overcome to succeed in a space like this? So there are several different types. Uh, there are many different types of open source projects, actually. But if you think about companies that's built on top of open source, there are quite a few examples like Red Hat, which was acquired for billions of dollars. It's built on top of adding services on top of Linux, which is, which is pretty much free. Uh, and then there are MongoDB or Oracle, which um, all of these huge corporations actually started um, building on top of open source libraries. But here, Vue is probably like, compared to them, it's completely different scale. At a different scale, Vue is a completely independent open source project that started out as a hobby project. And something I think that would be along the lines of Vue would be things like Laravel. But but if you take take a look back, like Linux actually started out as a as a one man project as well. So I think there are two parts of this. The first is um, you need to have someone who is passionate enough about it to invest uh, their own time into it in the beginning, and then when it gets momentum, it gets big enough. Then there could be potentially some business opportunities. You you would build actually a traditional business around it, but in many more cases, most of the time, these individual open source projects would fall in the chasm where it's big enough that it has a consistent group of users uh, with enough demand. However, it's not big enough to be properly monetized in order to support its maintainers to work on it full time. I think that's actually the most difficult thing for open source projects to, to get over with. It's a, I, I call it the chasm. You're big enough that it takes so much takes up so much of your time, but it's not big enough that it would pay you folk to work on it full time. How did you know that you weren't in that chasm? And at what point did you come to that realization that, oh, I can make money from this and actually quit my job? I actually wasn't even sure when I quit my job. <laughs> when I quit, I think I, I had the patience set up. Before I quit, I was pondering that idea. I wasn't entirely sure whether I would be able to actually survive just out of this. Then I had a, there was a company in China, a startup, and I, I, I'm a, uh, 
I'm actually a good friend with its CTO and we knew each other and I was telling him that I was think I'm thinking of working on this thing full time. And he was like, Hey, like we have this little fund in our company where we just use it to support open source projects. And we can like, I can actually arrange so that we are supporting you for $2,000 a month for six months straight. Wow. And yeah. And that really kind of gave me the boost needed. I was like, okay, I, you know, actually, I would actually get a, some bit of money to work on this now. That's so helpful. Yeah, that would definitely helped a lot. And then I started my Patreon. So combined with that money got, I got from the startup plus the uh, other money that I got from Patreon, I think uh, shortly after I started working on a full-time, I, re- I reached like $4,000 a month. So that was the point when I felt uh, less intimidated. I was like, mm, this is actually generating income and um, and it's actually growing over time. So that was the point where I was like, I, I could actually keep doing this for a bit longer. Because when I quit, I, I had some savings. But like, I was really just thinking like, I, I would try this maybe for a few months. And if it doesn't work out, I would actually just look for a new job. I actually had a few like resume sent out at the same time when I quit. <laughs> So were you thinking about quitting your job for a long time before you quit or was it suddenly you got the $2,000 a month in your bank account and you just went for it? I think I thought about it for quite a bit. Before I quit, I was already feeling the pull between this project versus my day job. And to be honest, uh, the feeling I got was I, I I felt more fulfilled working on Vue versus my day job. That was one of the primary reasons to quit. Working on something that I'm genuinely passionate about is is such a big bonus that I'm willing to just take a pay cut so that I can work on it because it, it feels makes me feel more fulfilled and makes uh, makes me happier about what I do. And turns out it, it worked out better than I hoped. I'm working on something that I like and I'm making more money than before, so that's really good. Did you try anything else before quitting your job? to sort of guarantee that you would get revenue or was this conversation that you had with your friend and his business your first attempt at trying to secure some funding for view when i was quitting i was my first primary goal was so that i can focus on making view better i wasn't thinking about say building a company around it i wasn't really aiming at say uh, building business that would generate as much revenue as possible it was more like a, a lifestyle decision. And in fact, uh, since I started working on a full-time, the first thing I did was I dropped everything and started rewriting Vue from the ground up. That was the start of Vue 2.0. How worried were you after you quit that you might eventually get to a position where you weren't making several thousand dollars a month and that your business wouldn't eventually work out for you? I definitely worried about it to some extent. But I think the reason I went with something like Patreon was... Um, I deliberately set up the whole sponsorship deal to be to to so that I don't have to actually do anything in return other than working on Vue. A lot of the things I saw some other open source projects do is they set up these sponsored tiers and they try to always because typically when you set up a patron campaign, people expect to get something in return specifically for the amount of amount of money they pledged. Say if you pledge, say, $20 a month, you would give some little swag stickers in return. Or uh, if they spend $500 a month, you would have to, say, give them exclusive updates or something special. But I didn't set up anything like that. I was pretty much just saying, if you 
pledge enough money, you'll get a bigger logo on the website. And that's it. You get some exposure through our website, but I wouldn't actually do anything special just because you give us more money. We take the money so that we can spend our time working on Vue to make it better. And what's in it for these people and these companies who are sponsoring Vue, especially at the beginning when you didn't really have that much to offer? How are you convincing them to support your project? I think in the beginning, uh, the first initial sponsors or donors mostly was supporting Vue because they, they were using it and they liked it. And they didn't want the project to die. Simple as that, right? It was pretty clear that, like, because when I, on the Patreon, I made it clear that this is my primary income source. And I, would, I need to make enough money from this so that I can uh, dedicate my time on Vue. So for them, it was pretty much like, they were building their product on top of Vue. So it's in their best interest that Vue is continue to be maintained and, and be made better. Right? So for them, it's uh, it's almost like a, an investment, just not so direct. The return is not so directly reflected the moment you spend the money. But for them, putting down the money gives them a better chance of Vue being relevant and maintained and stable for the long run. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a wise decision on their part. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, this is not... Hey, you know, pay for view and I'll provide you some, you know, theoretical value in the future. This is your entire company's product is built on top of this framework. And if it goes away, it's going to cost you many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to rewrite your product from scratch. And so it's worth them contributing a few hundred or thousand dollars a month. Yeah. And also it's funny because uh, I realized like a lot of companies say that when they build something and they realize in the end, the, the thing they built, they're built on top of is dead or gone. They would have to hire someone to completely rewrite the thing. The, the cost of rewriting an existing product is, is huge, right? It's like you're just like paying an uh, insurance so that you don't have to rewrite your app in two years. What's interesting is that there are lots of open source projects that big companies really depend on, that are crucial to their success, and yet that haven't been able to successfully garner the kinds of donations that you've gotten for review. Why do you think that is? What's hindering them? And what is it that's helping you? I think there are, there are two aspects of this. The first is uh, the type of projects uh, we we're seeing. Vue is, um, uh, as a front-end framework, it interacts very directly with the developers using it. Say, if a company is building a product using Vue, their developers interact with Vue almost every single day. Almost for all the code they write, they, they are interacting with Vue's API. They're reading Vue's documentation on a daily basis. This high exposure made it easier for people to justify the decisions. Say, we are sponsoring this high exposure project, and indirectly, we're going to, you know, our, our brand recognition is probably getting better return uh, given the money we're, we're donating. I think that's part of it. If you were to look at a project like Babel, which is also mostly maintained by volunteers. Uh, actually, the only person working on it full-time I know is Henry Zhu, uh, who I actually talk with a lot. And he's actually having uh, quite, uh, quite a bit of hard time trying to uh, secure enough funding for him to work on it full-time. But Babel is huge as well. For those of you who are not familiar with Babel, it's a library that uh, allows you to compile your... Uh, JavaScript that's written in a future syntax, the syntax that's not in the browsers yet, Babel can help you compile those into JavaScript that works in the browsers today. So it's a very important project in the JavaScript ecosystem used by millions of people. Yeah, I use it for indie hackers. Yeah, yet it's very difficult for it to, to say, monetize in a way that Vue does because 
it's so invisible in your infrastructure. You set it up once and you're pretty much done with it. So this makes it more difficult for these businesses to say, uh, this is something we want to get associated with as a sponsor. Because sponsorship is, is naturally, you know, the name entails that these sponsors want exposure through the partnership. Uh, this model works best when you have a project that's, that has a very high exposure and interaction ratio with the developers. It's interesting. It's, you've got all this competition. That almost helps you in that developers are so vocal about what their favorite front-end JavaScript framework is. People like to say that they're a fan of Vue or a fan of React or Ember or something, and it's like they just talk about it a ton. Or something like Babel is just sort of invisibly hums along in the background, and it does its job well, but like, I don't know very many Babel fans. It's like, what else is there to be a fan of instead of Babel? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, um, yeah, I think... It's funny because the frameworks competition, sometimes it turns into more like a sport fanship kind of thing where uh, people are just like, I like this versus that. I personally don't mind a little, you know, a little fun and such when you're comparing frameworks. But uh, the the thing I'm less fond of is some people like to compare it as as a war metaphor where like we're just like trying to kill each other. I don't think it's the case. It's most of the time it's... um, uh, these dif- different frameworks actually exist to kind of cater to slightly different tastes and needs for developers in different situations. But but this kind of, uh, you know, friendly competition, I would say, actually does help in terms of exposure. There's got to be a thousand articles written online about Vue.js versus React versus yeah. Angular, etc. You mentioned earlier that open source businesses are different. And that different businesses have to have different business models. Different projects have to have different ways that they try to grow if they want to succeed and make money. I talked to Mike Parham, for example, of Sidekick. And Sidekick is an open source project that does live sort of invisibly in the background. You set it up once and then it kind of works. And yet he's able to monetize it and also make like, I think he's making something like a million dollars a year, something crazy off of it. And what he's doing is, I think, charging money for special features and for customer support. My question for you is, you know, how do you look at something like that and reconcile with what you're doing with Vue? You know, why did you decide to go the donations route rather than doing something where you're charging customers directly for extra customer support or extra features? There's a few different ways you can monetize open source. And one of the easiest things that people can think about is like you charge money for support. Some companies are using my project, and if they want to get specialized support, they they give me money and I help with them. I thought about this when I was uh, first setting out, but I realized this is actually nothing different from, say, just doing consulting full time. I essentially have to trade my time for money. And if I do that, in order to earn more money, I'm actually cutting my hours that I can work uh, to, to, to be spent on view itself. So I realized that very early on that this wouldn't work for me. And this is not the thing I want. And another type of uh, open source is you would uh, have a freemium version, essentially what Sidekick is doing. You have this open source community edition, which is completely free, but you charge uh, money for some additional features, which I realized doesn't really make sense for something like Vue because what Vue excels at is that we have this enormous reach. We want to lower the barrier, want to make front-end programming accessible to as many developers as possible. Charging for like premium features just goes completely against what Vue is made for. Uh, so that didn't really work for us either. So um, plus, uh, donation is probably the, the least, kind of the most worry-free way of uh, income generation because uh, it's almost passive to some extent. 
Although I definitely need to keep working on view, but that's what I enjoy doing, right? So for me, I don't need to do too much uh, additional work in making sure these uh, everyone pays money on time, for example. That's handled by a patron for me. That's why they take a cut. And if they can do that for me, then I can focus my time on, on just working on the things I want to work on. Another aspect of this is because Vue is a front-end for a front-end library, most of the time it's really hard to charge licensing for some people for, for, for libraries that people just use in the front end. Especially when you have competitions like React and Angular, which are completely free, right? So the existence of uh, React and Angular pretty much makes pretty much means that it's impossible to charge a license fee and compete with them at the same time. You would have to be orders of magnitude better in every way to, for people to justify that position. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, we discussed the advantages of competition, but one of the disadvantages is that they kind of affect the price point. And if all your competitors are free, then you have to be free yourself. But I also really like what you said earlier, which is that your business model is a reflection of the way that you want to live your life. You know, this is your project that you created from the ground up. Why would you structure it in such a way where you end up having to do support work or consulting when that's not how you want to live your life? Yeah, I think that was the the, the point. Uh, because like indie hackers is all about people uh, doing these little ventures where it's uh, it, it has a strong correlation to the lifestyle you want, right? And I think uh, I read a I actually read the the four hours work week by uh, Tim Ferriss, which kind of uh, was a pretty influential book on me because I realized like I was doing the day job and working on something that I really wanted to work on in my spare time, and I wasn't really happy because it's taking up all my free time. And I realized if if this thing I'm so passionate about, I work on it and I can make money from it, I'm, I'm get, getting such a huge bonus in quality of life. I would get all these, uh, the time I'd usually spend on my day job that I can actually spend with family and do the other things in life that I want to enjoy. So that was really, really important revelation for me. Yeah, you're basically living the dream and maximizing your freedom as a person to do whatever it is that you want. Let me ask you about Patreon. So Patreon allows people to make donations in sort of a recurring fashion. So you mentioned like you don't have to reach out to these sponsors every month to make sure they're going to pay. They just automatically get charged. Patreon takes a cut and you don't have to worry about it. So that recurring part is all taken care of. But how did you get people to become sponsors in the first place? How much are you doing sales and how much are you just letting people sort of trickle in on their own? Believe it or not, it's completely organic. I do put links to the Patreon page on our website. Uh, there is a section on Views website called uh, Support Views Development. And when they go to that website, they will see first, obviously, they will see a list of existing patrons who send in the logos. So they see a wall of logos and they're like, hey, cool, I want, we want to get our logos on there. So what, what, what can we do? Then they get the link to the Patreon page where you get a, just an explanation of the benefits of different tiers. Like the more money you donate, your, the bigger logo you get. And that's pretty much it. So I don't actually do active reach out to any companies. I think all the patrons currently on our website is entirely organically generated. That's amazing. And that's really a testament to just how popular and well-known Vue is. It's not something that could happen otherwise. Yeah, There's this maxim that often gets repeated in the startup world that the only thing that matters is your product. As long as you build the best product, then it doesn't matter if you suck at sales, it doesn't matter if you neglect marketing, it doesn't matter if you don't find any distribution channels, your product is still going to win. Now, I'm pretty skeptical of that. I don't think that's true for the 99% of businesses, but it seems like for Vue, it kind of has been true. 
What would you say? How much of view success is due to the quality of view as a framework itself versus you making all the right decisions about how to grow it and get it into more people's hands? Uh, I think I would attribute most of it to just keep working on view itself, making sure it's good. So far, I, I try to spend as much time working on view itself compared to the time I actually need to manage things. And in fact, I think I spend very, very little time trying to actively increase the, say, the patron base or uh, reach out to sponsors. I don't actually do that because most of the time I feel like if you make the base big enough, then these people who are interested in sponsoring naturally tickle in. I, I could probably squeeze out more donations if I actually you know, uh, try to get more sponsors, but I also need to think about the, the, the invest of time required to do that, right? The same amount of time I invest in trying to secure one more sponsor versus the time I could just spend on uh, cranking out a new feature. For me, the latter is more satisfying. And also, it, it probably works for the long term better as well because the, the, the feature you add in there, it's in there. It makes your whole thing better and makes it more relevant, stay there longer, and gives you more chance to get new sponsors for the long term. That's really cool. And I think for many businesses, it doesn't quite work that way, especially if you're a fledgling startup and you haven't quite built the right product yet. You can add feature after feature all day, every day, and never get any more users. You mentioned this blog post you wrote, the postmortem of your first week after launching Vue. And I'm looking at it right now. You kind of talk about how many users you have, how many visits to your website, how many stars you got on GitHub. And you're around the low thousands mark or low hundreds mark where you had you know, 615 GitHub stars at the end of day seven. Today, Vue has something like 119,000 stars on GitHub. <laughs> what was the path like to yeah. go from you know, that small number to where you are now? It's actually quite a long journey. If you think about it, let me, uh, when was the, the blog post was published in 2014, February 2014, right? It's four, four years, eight months now. Actually, four years, nine months, almost five years, considering the time that led to that moment. And that's a very long process. There were a few like pivot points in between where I realized, oh, this is actually the next stage. But I think for the very long time in the beginning, I was completely just like in a in an underdog position where I didn't really think about how big I could become. I was just trying to say, I want to make this thing better. And I was I was actually genuinely excited when we reached uh, thirty thousand stars on GitHub. That was kind of the moment where I felt, oh, we're actually big. <laughs> but uh, I think just a few months later, we cro- we crossed fifty thousand. I was like, wow. that was fast. Then I started. Uh, then I just stopped caring about GitHub stars. <laughs> I don't even check it. <laughs> what was driving all this growth? I mean, Vue was great as a framework, but we mentioned earlier you're going up against React. You're going up against Angular. These are two frameworks created by very well-funded companies with endless marketing budgets, and yet today you have more stars on GitHub than both of them. And that's crazy. I mean, you're working with volunteers, and you started this thing all by yourself. What are some of the strategies you use to achieve this outsized result besides just working on Vue? I mean, you mentioned posting on Hacker News in the beginning and writing blog posts. Is that something that you continue to do? Um, so I don't, I don't write posts about like, uh, the operations side of Vue much. Uh, mostly when we release posts on Medium, it's about the technical stuff that we worked on, like the, the new features we launched, the new projects we launched. I think over time, what allowed us to, to compete with these uh, like big company-backed frameworks is just, uh, 
I think consistency and um, we were, we were pretty much always, we still are kind of like in this underdog mindset where there's a higher goal up there we can work towards. And I think that's good because uh, there's, there's always these new ideas like react today is still coming out with a lot of new ideas. Like uh, I have, Actually, I have a huge amount of respect to the React team because they are pretty much um, coming up with all these leading new ideas that kind of uh, make everything different. And Vue learned a lot from these competitions in order to to get where it is today. In terms of starting as an individual project, it's really important that you just have this uh, consistency. And I think there was a period of time where I felt the pressure was like, they have all these teams, all these money and resource to work on these things. Why would I keep working on Vue? It's never never going to get as popular as theirs. But but then I realized, you know, I wasn't really trying to build this thing to compete with them. I was trying to build this thing to 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 fulfill a need of of the developers that are using my library. Right? They are happy using my library, and uh, my goal of working on it is not to say I want to get all the users, React users to use Vue. My goal is to get people who would like, who already like Vue, like it better, and get those people who are not using any framework to potentially use Vue. We realized, like, the, um, I realized the, the whole pie for all this, like, web ecosystem is huge. There are still a lot of developers who have not used a single framework. And these are still, like, big opportunities for, for all these frameworks out there. And our job is to make sure you can capture these uh, developers, make their lives easier, allow them to build the stuff they want to build easier. And if we can achieve that goal, I don't really care about whether Vue is bigger than React or is bigger than Angular. That's not my goal. What is your goal? I mean, how do you measure the impact that Vue is having on the world? Do you count how many people are using it? Do you count the number of downloads? Do you look at, you said you stopped looking at your stars on GitHub. How do you know if you're doing a good job? Uh, there are some some metrics that we can look at. Um, so npm downloads is very inaccurate. GitHub stars is actually a very inaccurate metric as well because it doesn't directly correlate to how many people are actually using it in your product. It's more like a, an expressive interest. Uh, people who who may not even have used it, they will start it so that one day they will come back and look at it. So the the more um, relevant metrics that I look at personally is the amount of people using our developer tools extension. It's a Chrome extension that you install uh, in, in Chrome. And when you develop a Vue application, you can use that extension to debug your application. So this is a tool. Any If you are using this tool, it likely means you're actually using Vue to build real stuff. So I look at that and uh, conveniently, Chrome, uh, the Chrome Web Store actually gives you the number of users that's uh, the weekly active users using it, which is really nice. So I think currently we're around like 690,000 users around the globe, uh, which is approximately a, a, a half of reactive tool users. That's huge. Yeah, this number is the, the one that I personally uh, use as a reference when we were gauging uh, overall growth. Actually, there was just recently a... Um, there is a project called State of JS, which is an annual project where they do a big survey every year and publish a lot of uh, statistics. That actually provides a good uh, good reference as well because we are seeing views user a percentage. They actually do the statistics um, by counting users who have used it and would continue using it 
users who have used it but will not use it anymore, and users who have not used it but wanted to learn, and users who not use it but don't want to learn about it. So you have all of these categories and views stats is growing over time, and we get the I think we just hit the highest satisfaction ratio in this year's edition, uh, which is something really encouraging to us. I'm curious how view success has impacted you on a more personal level. And I'm sure your life is way different now than it was when you first released View. What are some of the changes that you like the most and what do you like the least? The best part is um, being able to just work on something you like on a daily basis. And I get to also completely uh, determine my own schedule. I can work at the pace that I like. If I feel that I'm less productive this week, I can you know, take it slow. But if I'm in the zone, I could just you know, keep working 12 hours a day, a few days straight. I can sort of adjust to my own pace instead of always having to hit a deadline that's arbitrarily decided by someone higher up. And uh, another aspect is because I now work from home, I get a I think I enjoy much better work-life balance, right? When I get off work, I'm directly just, I walk downstairs. I, I work in my office upstairs, right? When I'm done for the day, I just walk downstairs and with family instantly. Before that, when I worked uh, in New York City, uh, and I lived in Jersey, I had to commute, spend like close to three hours every day on a bus, Jeez. which is just terrible. <laughs> so these are a lot of uh, little perks. And the the worst part about it is probably just the, the overall, the, the constant pressure, because now everything is in your own hands. So if you slack off, right, you're risking to, to fail. Whereas in the big company, you feel a bit more comfortable, just like, um, you know, this company is too big to fail. I can just, you know, work slowly and, and not really worry too much. But uh, when you're working for yourself, you know, this, this is just like any indie developer would have to have this constant pressure of just want to make sure you're doing enough work. You're, you're uh, constantly making sure your business model is still valid, validating your ideas. Think about how your product was standing the next three to two, uh, three to four years. You just have to constantly be thinking about all these things all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's like all the weight is on your shoulders and there's really no excuse if it doesn't work out. There's nobody else to blame, it's just you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of people listening in are perhaps developers who are considering getting into open source and building a project that they can somehow monetize or maybe building a tool for other developers to use. What's your advice for somebody just starting out in this position and what mistakes should they avoid making? So when I built Vue, uh, I didn't really think about monetization. But if you are building something with the goal of monetization from day one, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. It, it definitely could work. Uh, it's just that the monetization model that you have in mind must have a good fit with the product that you're building, right? with, the, with the software you're building. As I discussed before, uh, things like Sidekick naturally uh, fits better with a freemium model because it's a server-side component, which these companies, it is easy to build for when you have something running on their servers. Uh, whereas uh, a front-end framework like Vue uh, is a bit harder to, to do in that mode. But due to Vue's high exposure, we can go the sort of a, a crowdsourced uh, sponsorship route, which doesn't necessarily work for a server-side project. Right. So you need to sort of um, find these. Uh, it's it's best if you have a close reference project that you can sort of model after. But a lot of times it also takes some a bit of trial and error. So there's definitely risk involved when you say you want to start out from day one uh, and, and do it open source. 
So in fact, uh, if your goal is to say have a successful business, I would consider treat it as a product first and consider open source as something that complements your strategy instead of say, I want to do open source and make money at the same time. That's really great advice. And I think it's advice that could be applied more broadly to pretty much anyone building a business. There is no one single playbook that's going to tell you exactly how you should monetize for your product. It really depends on what you're building and all of these different pieces of your business are connected. So you really have to think about what am I building? Who's my audience? When you're deciding how much you're going to charge and what your business model is going to be. Anyway, thank you, Evan, so much for coming on the podcast. I wish I could have you for longer. Can you tell people listening where they can go to learn more about you and View and the things that you're up to? Uh, sure. Um, so I don't actually update my personal website anymore, but you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is uh, Yuxi. That's my the spelling of my Chinese name. Y-O-U-Y-U-X-I. Uh, and Vue.js, our website is at Vue.js.org. That's where our documentation and all the information. If your company is interested in sponsoring us, please do. All right. Thanks again, Evan. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.